Welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. Can we pray away the gay? This week, we discuss conversion therapy, which the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as, quote, the use of any various methods, such as aversive stimulation or religious counseling, in an attempt to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or to change a person's gender identity to correspond to the sex the person has or was identified as having at birth, end quote. The same dictionary also notes that conversion therapy is generally regarded as having no scientific basis and as being both ineffective and harmful. Despite clear evidence that conversion therapy does not work and, according to all major medical and mental health organizations in the U.S., actually harms LGBTQ people, the practice continues. An estimated 700,000 adults in the U.S. have undergone conversion therapy to date, many with serious, sometimes fatal consequences. But there's hope, though. Thanks in part to the work of our guests this week, 20 states and over 100 localities in the U.S. have banned conversion therapy. And recently, Canada banned the practice nationwide. Here to talk about conversion therapy, the challenges survivors face, and what the U.S. is doing or should be doing to ban this damaging practice are Matthew Shurka, co-founder and chief strategist at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, Born Perfect, a campaign to end conversion therapy. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you. And Christine Stolakis, director and producer of Pray Away, a documentary that takes us inside the history and continuation of the Pray the Gay Away movement. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me. First, a little cautionary note to listeners. We may get into some frank talk about physical self-harm and possibly even suicide. Matthew, the first few questions are for you. Tell us what qualifies as conversion therapy and when did the practice uh, become common? Or perhaps we should say, when, when was it popularized? Trying to cure homosexuals has existed for more than a century in a more modern context. You know, you can go to the early 1900s and think of lobotomies and electric shock therapy. It was up until 1973 when the American Psychiatric Association voted to remove homosexuality as a disease from the DSM-5 list that there was a real shift on how the medical and mental health practitioners viewed homosexuality. And in that very same year, some of the largest organizations, and specifically Exodus International, were founded in that very same year in response to homosexuality being no longer viewed as a disease by those professional fields. The definition which you read so eloquently, <laughs> conversion therapy as a term really is an umbrella word. It's any attempt to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. And that can be through a licensed professional therapist. It could be a religious figure of any kind, or it could be a friend or a family member. And yes, there's no scientific backing for it whatsoever. And there have been so many different attempts that we hear about, whether it's just through one-on-one -on -one talk therapy, like you imagine when you go and see a therapist, or there are more aggressive forms of conversion therapy that are aversion types of therapy, like electric shock therapy, having kids take medications that are being prescribed to them and shouldn't be prescribed to them. Even just something as simple as taking antidepressants when maybe the person's not really depressed. Maybe they're just not being accepted at home for who they are. In my personal story of my time in conversion therapy, I was told to take Viagra, yet I didn't have erectile dysfunction. I just was a gay young boy. You were in conversion therapy from about the age of 16 to 20. Did I have the years right? Yeah, 16 to 21. And it was a total of five years. The entirety of those five years was conducted by licensed professionals. I guess you could say in a weird way, my parents did their due diligence. 
a lot happened in those five years. And I think in short, I went through a training of how to build my masculinity and understand my relationship to my peers, AKA men <laughs> and the opposite sex women and understanding what those relationships should be according to the, the therapist. Christine, I want to bring you in. You're the director and producer of Pray Away, a documentary released in August, I believe on Netflix that profiles former leaders of the religious conversion therapy movement. So tell us a little bit about the film and what inspired you to make it. I got into this topic because my uncle went through conversion therapy when he came out as transgender as a child. Similar to Matthew, he went through conversion therapy with licensed therapists, though this was in an era when every therapist was a conversion therapist. So this is in the late 60s and early 70s. And what followed his time in talk therapy was a lifetime of mental health challenges that I now know are very common for people that go through this, that included depression and anxiety and alcoholism and addiction to prescription drugs and obsessive compulsive disorder and suicidality. And his life was hellish. And that belief that he could change and that to be, a, to be trans was both a sickness and a sin, that stuck with him way beyond his time sitting across the table from a, a licensed therapist. Never believed that he could live as a trans individual. Always thought change was potentially around the corner and always thought it was his personal failure that he could not become cis. And he actually passed away right before I went to film school very unexpectedly. And in the wake of his passing, I decided I wanted my first feature documentary to be about this movement. So I started to research. And what I found is that the vast majority of people who run conversion therapy organizations are actually LGBTQ folks themselves who claim that they have changed. This is a movement of hurt people hurting other people of internalized homophobia and transphobia wielded outward. And that really helped me understand why my uncle believes that change was possible his whole life. It's because there are very persuasive teachers who claim that they've changed themselves. So the film really became a study of why would someone ever claim that they have changed? Why would they do that when we know all the things that we've already said, that conversion therapy is not only ineffective, but doesn't work at all, is not based in any science and causes pain and trauma for folks, et cetera, et cetera. And then we also weave in the story of someone who primarily experienced conversion therapy from the point of view of being a participant in these programs and in a program that continues into today. So I want to play a clip from the documentary. And here we're gonna, in this next clip, we're going to hear from Julie Rogers. She's a former leader in the movement. And actually, just to say, so she was someone who was very visible in the movement and took leadership positions, but she also primarily experienced the movement from the point of view of a participant. So she was a part of a program that continues today called Living Hope that continues in Texas uh, to this day. And um, she was in conversion therapy about one or two times a week there. She was also, which you see in the film, um, a prominent speaker in this movement, just to say. So both things are true, absolutely. Um, but I wouldn't want to only call her a leader. So this clip that we're going to hear is she is reading from the manuscript of the book, which is now out, called Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. She's reading this to her fiancé. The first time I burned myself, I was sitting on a curb outside of the church after a Living Hope meeting. As my cigarette burned low, without giving it much thought, I shoved the burning end of it into my shoulder and listened as the skin on my left arm sizzled. Shortly after that night, I sat alone in my room, lost in a whirlwind of fear, agony, and self-loathing. That's when I remembered the cigarette burn and the wave of detachment that washed through my body the moment the fire seared my skin. After scanning my room for metal objects that would heat under fire, I landed on a quarter. 
Clamping the quarter with tweezers, I plunged into the flame of a lighter, my heart rate rising as the coin heated up. I inhaled, flexed my left arm, and pressed the quarter deep into my flesh until the skin broke and the pain numbed. I repeated the process at least 20 times that afternoon, searing straight lines into my shoulder, each a few inches wide. For weeks, I engaged in a routine of applying Neosporin to the wounds every morning and evening. We were safe in those moments, me and my body. I could roll up my shirt sleeve, expose my wounds, and be met with tenderness and compassion. In the years that followed, when the anguish became unbearable, I would return to this routine, burning straight lines into my shoulders and tending to the wounds to self-soothe. I've heard depression described as anger turned inward. Perhaps that's what I was doing in my dorm room all those years ago. I took the rage I felt about living in a body that couldn't be submitted to the kind of body it was supposed to be, a straight body, a feminine body, a good Christian body, and I lit it on fire. That's Julie Rogers in Christine Stolakis' film, Pray Away. This reminds me of a story from my personal life that I met a young man years ago. He was 23 or so, and we had a brief fling. Anyway, he, I noticed that he had scars on his upper arm. And I talked to him about it. And he said they were um, the cut marks from, I think he'd been cutting himself. And he then proceeded to tell me that he had um, grown up with a very conservative religious family in Texas. And at some point they decided, you know, he couldn't be gay and he should go to a therapist. And so he went to this therapist and the and the therapist eventually, um, he said, oh, you're, you're gay because you didn't, you didn't have a good relationship with your father. You didn't get enough hugs. And so they started doing hug therapy. And the hugging evolved to, it became sexual and, you know, something he didn't want from this creepy therapist. And he ended up somehow online, found some other young men who were in the same situation with the same therapist, and they were involved in a lawsuit against him, which is great. I think the story ended a little bit well on that side. It's, it's just chilling that this happens. And I mean, how much is religion behind all of it? I mean, was that behind the psychological associations having homosexuality as, as an illness way back when? Well, you can say, you know, when... It was removed as a disorder for, by the American Psychiatric Association. The religious angle, which was always there, was a good way to actually treat, I'm doing air quotes, treat homosexuality or being trans through a way that was not through the mental health field. And it has really grown. And yes, I would say it's the majority of it. However, I also like to say, and we don't have exact numbers on this, a lot of these religious figures, because they are seeking credibility, one, many of them do become licensed professionals at, at, and as well be religious figures. So they may be a counselor, a social worker, maybe even a psychotherapist, or they will work with a psychotherapist to also guide them with some ways to use professional techniques. So I, I like to make up a number so it gives people an idea. If you want to think of for like for every professional therapist that is doing quote unquote conversion therapy, they'll work with 10 pastors near them. And, and, and what they do is they all refer, they also have a referral system there where these pastors will find a young LGBT person, either treat them themselves or refer them to the one therapist that they know. And, and that's also how they make money. There is a, there is a, this is an industry where money is being made amongst these therapists and religious figures who charge by the hour. Um, so yes, to answer your question, majority of it is religious space, but they are working very much so hand in hand with professionals. Wild. Absolutely. And, and also beyond the more formal arrangements, 
even when this happens within religious organizations, and a lot of it does happen within religious organizations, psychology and disproven psychological beliefs are weaved into the message that this is a sin. And that is a really powerful and toxic combination for people that not only are you sick, but you're sinning. And not only are you sinning, but you are very sick. People um, are looking for credible, quote unquote, my turn to do air quotes, sources to point to uh, justify homophobic and transphobic religious beliefs. And the air of psychology can make things sound a lot more official, but any science that's being pointed to in this world has been disproven and pushing it forward is shown to be harmful. There's this moment in the film where there's sort of a group therapy session. Is that what you'd call it? Exactly. Michael Bussey, the founder of Exodus International, helped arrange and describes this meeting of survivors and leaders as the most, I think he says, most the most powerful group therapy session that he'd ever been a part of. Michael, after founding Exodus, ended up leaving Exodus after just a few years falling in love with his co-founder, coming out as gay, immediately spoke out against the organization, but then also went on to work as an actual licensed counselor. So he was a really special person to be running that group therapy session. They disbanded the group after that, and yet the practice still continues. So what's going on now? Exodus International was the largest of these organizations, but why did it continue after they disbanded? So Exodus was an umbrella organization. You could think of them as like a referral organization that also had conferences. So they had national convenings where people would gather once-ish a year. But overall, what Exodus did is, let's say a parent was referred to Exodus. They call Exodus and Exodus says, oh, you live in this state, in this city? Great. We know a pastor, a youth group, a Bible study, a therapist that works uh, with quote unquote, you know, gay and troubled youth or whatever language would be used to describe conversion therapy. So when Exodus disbanded, it's like the most popular phone book for conversion therapy disbanded, but the organizations that they were referring people to and the individual practitioners and the individual religious leaders that people were being referred to, those people continued on. Another piece of the puzzle, there's new ways in which conversion therapy and the ex-LGBTQ movement is changing, growing, rebranding. There's a huge online presence of what's called the hashtag change movement, where you might not be sitting across the table from some sort of therapist or pseudotherapist that's a pastor, but you might find tons of ex-LGBTQ quote-unquote testimonies online on an Instagram or TikTok page that is going to teach you these same belief systems, but just in a different form. I think it's the idea that being LGBTQ is a sickness and a sin and that you can somehow treat it, you can somehow pray this hard or see this therapist and something could change. That is the belief system overall that's continued also, and that's something we tried to capture in the film. It's a practice, but it's a movement. So Matthew, what inspired you to found Born Perfect? And you know, tell us how that work is evolving, please. You know, it was really non-intentional. <laughs> I think one thing led to another in my life experience. So I left conversion therapy in 2009. I went through therapy to overcome conversion therapy. I'm in a great place. Um, but it was, and it was around 2012. I was 23 turning 24 years old. I had just created a video that a friend suggested for the It Gets Better project. And that video went viral on YouTube for, you know, not anything too big, but big enough to catch the eyes of some organizations. And the National Center for Lesbian Rights had reached out to me. And so I began volunteering with them 
And California was the very first state where they introduced legislation to make it illegal. And it passed in the fall of 2012. In 2014, we decided to give it its own name, its own campaign. And with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, I co-founded Born Perfect. Ending conversion therapy has become the fastest moving cause in the LGBT movement. It's now 20 states and 130, maybe 35 now cities that have passed laws banning conversion therapy. Several movies have been made. Culturally, people know what conversion therapy is today. And this is including Pray Away. Having a release on Netflix, I can share the stories and really debunk what conversion therapy is and that all of these leaders in the conversion therapy movement are openly LGBTQ today, or many of them, and some are still on their way out. The world has really changed around this conversation, both in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. Both Democratic and Republican platforms took a position that alone just shows how much of a national conversation conversion therapy has become when it before it was really just something underground. Do you have a sense of, you know, what it's going to take to get the rest of the states or to get national legislation like Canada just passed in the United States? France has now also passed a national ban and their bans include all ages. It's not that conversion therapy is legal. It never was legal in the first place. It was just too many therapists were doing it, that a law was needed to actually prevent them from doing it. Just like any other malpractice or consumer fraud case, any LGBT person at any age can bring a complaint against their therapist and they should be protected by a local court. There's just never been a specific law that actually protects them that, it, hey, this is illegal by all means. And that's what the US laws and, and the laws in Canada and France say. And yes, the ones in the U.S. are limited to 18 and, and younger. Christine, you asked me to play a clip from the film from Jeffrey McCall. He's a current conversion therapy advocate who formerly identified as transgender. In this clip, he shares why he decided to take part in the conversion therapy movement. The biggest things that Jesus is to me is truth. When you know the truth, the truth sets you free. I believe the Bible that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. I do believe that people can change and have a refreshing renewing over their whole sexuality. The Holy Spirit can give you new desires and wants. Jesus can transform you. You're hearing Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen, discussing the status of conversion therapy with Christine Stolakis, director and producer of the Netflix documentary Pray Away, which premiered on Netflix last summer, and Matthew Shurka, co-founder and chief strategist at the National Center for Lesbian Rights' Born Perfect Project. Born Perfect is a campaign to end conversion therapy by passing laws across the country to protect LGBTQ children and young people, fighting in courtrooms to ensure their safety and raising awareness about the serious harms caused by these dangerous practices. That's a quote from their website. So, Christine, would you say that the conversion therapy movement today is growing or diminishing? There's so many corners of our country and our world where this is continuing. So we know it continues on every major continent. And we know that there is a kind of burgeoning millennial driven movement that we capture and pray away that is continuing the same practices and beliefs, but in slightly different, again, millennial internet driven forms. So we know those things. But Matthew, I'm, I'm curious what you think in terms of is this, you know, growing and burgeoning? Because 
my own experience is we have a limited set of numbers from the studies that exist and that this is definitely staying the same and or growing in terms of its impact on young folks in some ways, but then diminishing in others. Yeah, you know, there's not an exact number and there's good evidence for both. Exodus closed their doors. They were the largest in the U.S. And then there's other organizations that also close. And you see literally in the film Pray Away, many of these ex-gay former conversion therapists coming out of the closet publicly in big ways. There is a big decline. However, and there is a however, we're in a world where social media and the internet has taken a real new form and life of its own. It's so funny because I'm a millennial. I'm 33 years old. I went through conversion therapy from 2004 to 2009. I got Facebook in 2006. Instagram wasn't around yet. It, you know, even my time in conversion therapy, it still very much was a word of mouth phenomenon. And it still is. However, but we do see the numbers today when a conversion therapist or an organization that does conversion therapy produces a video and it gets millions of views. And that is visible for all of us to see now. We have partnered with Facebook now on tracking those numbers. They have created a policy, how to take down those posts. You know, through the Facebook reports that we've worked on, internationally through Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and other social media channels, the numbers are enormous. Specifically in the Middle East, we've seen conversion therapy on the rise in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Africa, and throughout Southeast Asia, specifically Malaysia as well. So while Western nations may be introducing bans, there is definitely an increase that's happening globally. Hard to say... Are we in a better place from where we were before? I think there is a decline. There is a global conversation, global movements and meetings that I'm part of that, you know, where advocates are coming together to really combat conversion therapy. But, you know, the internet exposed a lot of things and one of them is conversion therapy. I also was going to add that for trans folks, you know, we're talking about conversion therapy in religious organizations. We're talking about conversion therapy with like pseudoscience, you know, being weaved into religious beliefs that sends these, you know, really damaging messages. But for trans folks that go to licensed therapists today, there is a decent chance plenty of trans folks with licensed therapists are getting misinformation and a complete lack of gender affirming care that's sending a message that to be trans is a sickness, which in my book is conversion therapy. You know, we can maybe debate the semantics as we evolve to how to stop that practice and make sure that that's not happening to um, our trans community. There's no question that in mainstream society, in religious and secular communities, that trans folks are often getting a message still that they are sick um, and not being given gender affirming care when they go to their doctors, when they go to therapists. Yeah. And on that note, are the laws that were passed in Canada and France and uh, the existing um, bans on conversion therapy that have been passed in 20 states here and in cities across the United States, do they include transgender folks in the conversion therapy or is it mostly just all you know gay and lesbian sexual orientation stuff? All the U.S. bills made sure that they are included. Okay, very good. And the other the last thing I wanted to ask, because we sort of forgot to earlier, but you were talking about statistics and data and bad data and fake news. Um, what are the statistics that uh, show that th- that this is a specific harm that can come out and a specific risk for youth, especially that can come out of conversion therapy? There are uh, numerous studies that show the risk of suicide 
for conversion therapy patients. They shouldn't even be called patients and just catching myself. They all show they have a, they have a really higher probability of committing suicide or attempting suicide. Uh, and one, the LGBT community is already at higher risk, and we see conversion therapy um, victims or survivors are even much greater. I think the best study that really demonstrates this was a study by the Family Acceptance Project based out of San Francisco. And that study, it shows that over 60% of people who experience conversion therapy have attempted suicide, not thought about it, like actually attempted. And the number, the numbers are staggering. That by any other definition should be a health crisis, you know, a state of emergency of how we think about our youth. Um, and I don't know if the rest of the country really grapples with how big of a number that is. That's a huge number, about three times the, the rate for LGBTQ youth who have not been exposed to any kind of conversion therapy, at least in any formal sense, right? Absolutely. And it unfortunately makes sense when you look at this as a movement that is teaching people to hate themselves. And that is, you know, it's a reason you see self-harm in so many forms be a part of this movement. In the example of my uncle, he was suicidal and had suicidal ideations, but he also struggled with addiction, which is extremely common. He also struggled with um, thoughts of self-harm, which is extremely common. We feature the fact that Julie in the film participated in self-harm. So, you know, the manifestation of self-hatred, it will come out in some way and the consequences are extraordinarily devastating. Where can people see the film and how can they get involved in helping Born Perfect? You can see the film on Netflix, um, which is such a gift. And I'm so grateful for our partnership with them. Um, and we are also beginning um, to launch our impact campaign now that COVID is, is calming down. And we are starting um, an impact campaign that's going to take us to 10 different cities where we're having screenings of the film with religious organizations and communities um, in um, partnership with places and organizations like Born Perfect and Survivors uh, to try to start conversations um, within places where this is still happening about how to make sure that it stops happening. And the website is? www.prayawayfilm.com. Prayawayfilm.com. Thank you. Matthew? Please reach out and connect with us at bornperfect.org. That is the same on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Born Perfect. There's so many ways to participate. I think finding about local legislation, how you can support those bills is really important and powerful, especially if you live in a state or a city that doesn't have any protection. You can also find that on our website if your state has those protections in place. And we do have a legal helpline. So if you or anyone you know has experienced conversion therapy and you have a legal question or seeking legal support or even potentially want to bring a case you can call our legal helpline. That's also on our website. And our team would love to be you know, in communication with you. And please know that all communications are confidential. Very good. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate your taking the time and for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Out in the Bay. My guests were Matthew Shurka, co-founder and chief strategist at the National Center for Lesbian Rights Born Perfect Project. Learn more at bornperfect.org. And Christine Stalakis, director and producer of the new Netflix documentary, Pray Away. Learn more at prayawayfilm.com. To learn more about conversion therapy and what you can do to help ban the practice in the USA, check those websites. We'll also post them on our website. 
That's outinthebay.org. You can find links in the post for this week's show at outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org, where you can hear recent shows, hear this show again, and share them with friends. You can also sign up for our occasional email newsletter so you won't miss an episode, and subscribe to Out in the Bay via podcast. Please also consider making a donation to help us keep bringing queer air to your ears. Out in the Bay is nonprofit and independent. We get no financial support from the radio stations that air Out in the Bay weekly, nor from NPR, nor podcast platforms. We rely on listener support. Just click any donate link on our site, outinthebay.org. We thank Brad Payton and Richard Merck of Silicon Valley for their generous support. We'll thank you on air only if you'd like us to. Our theme music was written and performed by Holly Mead. Thank you, Holly. Thanks also to KALW 91.7 FM, SF Bay Area, and San Francisco Public Press and its radio station, KSFP 102.5 FM, for broadcasting out in the Bay. And to producer Kendra Klang and audio engineer and sound designer Christopher Beal. Want to join our team? Email us at outinthebay at yahoo.com to learn more. That's outinthebay at yahoo.com. You can also send comments there. We would love to hear from you, really. Outinthebay at yahoo.com. I'm Eric Jansen. Thanks for joining us. Out in the Bay.